Bokertov, good morning. Thank you to our sponsors for the year, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, and family in memory of David Grossman, Becky's father, Menachem, David Ben Menachem Manash, and Neshama Shadavan Aliyah. And also, uh, thanks for the sponsorship for this morning's class and Precious Vayigash in particular. Our good friends Lester and Judith Henner, and Benji and Zelda Henner, on occasion of the Shloshem of Egan Heller, of Lester's uh, father Yitzchak Ben Yaakov, his Neshama should continue to have an Aliyah, and they should find comfort during this period of mourning and of grieving. I'll remind you of our new policy that we announced last week. Please turn your phones off or to vibrate. If a phone rings, you have to join Friends of BRS. If you already joined, you have to pay the same amount the second time. So it's in your wallet's best interest to make sure right now that your phone is off. It's in my interest that your phone not be off, but it's in your interest for it to be off. Parshas Vayigash. This is it, the amazing storyline of Sefer Bracious continues to unfold. And as I mentioned last week, though we know how it turns out, and despite knowing what happens, nevertheless, it's a nail-biter. We're at the edge of our seat. What's going to happen? What's going to be? Yehuda Vayigashi stands up and he steps out and he approaches Yosef and he confronts him. And instead of being passive, and instead of being afraid, and instead of living with an intimidation and an apologetic, Yehuda now asserts himself. He steps up and he steps forward. As I mention every year, if you look at the end of Parshas Miketz, you see that it's very peculiar. Because how does Parshas Miketz end? Yehuda is in the middle of a conversation with Yosef. The last week's parsha ended and Yehuda is talking to Yosef. So though we have a week break in between, from Shabbos to Shabbos, although we do Shnai Mikra and we hear it Monday and Thursday, but we have a week break in between, so to us it feels like the storyline has a break, but it doesn't. Miketz runs right into Vayigash. Yehuda and Yosef are in the middle of a conversation, and yet, nevertheless, despite the fact that they are already in the middle of a conversation, Vayigash elav Yehuda. What's different? What is the change or the transition that takes place here in this, in this conversation? What is, what is changing? So, the word Vayigash is the difference. And we relive that Vayigash each and every day, three times a day, that word Vayigash means to step forward. Yehuda steps forward. And we relive it. I'm not going to tell you now. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow at the CMHS that we're hosting. I hope that you'll all join for. We'll speak about what it means, particularly in this day and age and in this time, our responsibility to step up and stand out for one another. To not just be able to have casual conversations and not just to be able to casually advocate, to Vayigash. To step up is a whole new level and our responsibility to do it. If you've not yet bought tickets, you can still come by at the door tomorrow. Several thousand have already purchased. It's going to be an enormous uh, event. It promises to be a beautiful, beautiful day with a live hookup to the CM in New York. 11 to 1 is the local South Florida CM. 1 o'clock is the live hookup to New York. Rabbi Ephraim Shapiro is speaking. Rabbi Sromeyer Druk is here from Israel with personalized Divrei Bracha from Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky for this CM. Simcha Liner concert. It's going to be food for sale. It's going to be a beautiful event. 
All the details are available at southfloridaseum.org. Southfloridaseum.org. You can get all the information about where to go and you can buy tickets there at the door. So we'll talk more about Vayigash there. But the Imre Chaim, the Vishnitzer, has another interpretation. Says the Imre Chaim, Vayigash, I love you, Uda. When we reference this, we think of part of it. We know that the early righteous, the early pious ones, would actually designate time for mindfulness, for his bodhidus. They would sit and think and contemplate and clear their head. They would, what we say in our now modern languages, they'd meditate. Before they would begin davening, they would daven. Before they'd begin davening, they would meditate. They'd spend a whole hour, and the commentaries in the Gemara that Mishnah and Baruchos tell us, that's the origin of Psuke de Zimra. We say it in a whole lot less than an hour, depending what minion you go to. You swallow it at a different rate than another minion. But Psuke de Zimra was designed, it was designated to be that time that before we begin that conversation with the Almighty, we give it some thought, and we clear our head, and we shut out distractions. We create a ritual of putting our phone on airplane mode or turning it all the way off. We have some meditative formula in which we're able to visually clear out our head and focus exclusively so that when we have that conversation, when we take those three steps forward, we're having a meaningful conversation with Hashem. We take a few deep breaths. That's the Shom Sha'achas. When you spend that time before you daven, you take deep breaths. You know what happens when you take deep breaths? The word neshama, the word neshima come from the same letters. We are in touch with our soul when we take deep breaths. We're always running and running and breathing so shallow and moving and, and we are distracted and our neshama suffers. When a person carves that space for solitude, for thought, for reflectiveness, for mindfulness, for meditation, then we reconnect to our neshama, to our core being and to our healthy self. And now we're ready to have a conversation with Hashem. So, Shom Sha'achas, they would spend an hour kodam before davening, umispalulim kedesha yechavno. They would daven, that they have an effective davening. And says the Vishnu Tzarebbe, that's what's going on over here. We sometimes get up, we daven, we close the sitter, and we don't remember saying one word. We find ourselves at the end of davening, and we don't remember the journey. We get to the destination, and we have no idea how we got there. We have no idea how we got there. Have you ever driven somewhere, and you pulled into that parking lot, and it was an hour drive from your home, but you don't remember one turn Stepping on the gas, stepping on the brake, you remember nothing about it. You were listening to something, you were engrossed in conversation, you arrive, and you weren't present for any part of the journey. And for too many of us, that's the davening experience. We arrive at Aleinu, the Shir Shayom, we close the sitter, and we don't remember how we, how we got there. And the Baal said, so therefore, what do we need to do? We shouldn't just bemoan the fat up, oh, there goes another davening. I didn't concentrate, I didn't have kavana, I wasn't focused, I forfeited the opportunity. Before davening, you're not going to experience holiness, you're not going to experience transformation if we don't prepare, if we don't put in the effort in advance. The preparing for davening is to daven that we have a successful davening. That's what we say when we say, Hashem, open my lips and give me the words. That opening pasuk, which comes from Tehillim, Forget the context right now, although it is important to make meaningful our davening. We'll get to it in Siddur snippets in about 27,000 years when we get to Shemana Ezra. But Hashem Sfasai Tiftach, Hashem, move my lips. Hashem, I'm about to approach you to have a conversation. Help me find the right words. Help me be present and mindful. 
Help me be focused. Help it be what it's meant to be. And said the Baal Shem, that's what we say when we say, Ana Hashem Hoshia Na. Whenever you see Nun Aleph, that word Na is the language of prayer, of davening, of asking. So, Ana Hashem Hoshia Na. Mevakshem Ana Hashem Isbarach, Ana Hashem Hoshia Na. Nucha Lispala Karai, Ana Hashem Hoshia. Hashem, save me? Na, when I come to daven. When I come to daven, save me from someone talking to me. Save me from being distracted. Save me from my mind wandering. Save me from not liking the chazan. Save me from a bad chazan who I shouldn't like. Ana Hashem, Hashem Hatzlicha, save me, bring me success. Ana Hashem Hashia, na. Ana Hashem Hatzlicha, na. When I come to Davin, help me, empower me. Vizeu says the vision it, sir, and that's the pasuk. Vayigash Yehuda vayamar bi Adoni. Alaf dalad nun yud hakavan l'Hashem isbarach. As rain in our Ribbon shall olam, Yedaber no Avdacha Dover Bosne Adoni, Shuchalas Palat Filo Ui Kedaboy. So again, it's a Hasidish drush in the Pasuk, but certainly not the Pshat, Pshat. Vayomer, be Adoni. Vayomer, a person should say, be Adonai. A person should say, Hashem, Yedaber no Avdacha, Daber Bosne Adoni. Give me the words, give me the focus, give me the concentration. We sometimes forget we're allowed to daven for the spiritual thing. In the Amun on Wednesday mornings, we sometimes talk about davening to Hashem, asking Hashem to help us with Amuna. Makes no sense whatsoever. It's illogical. I should ask the person that I'm struggling to believe exists to help me have the confidence that he exists. Yeah, it's exactly what you should do. It's exactly what we should do. Hashem, help me believe in you. Hashem, help me connect to you. Hashem, help me hear you. Hashem, help me feel you in my life, says the Vision Tzarebbe. That's what's going on here in the opening Pasuk. The Kliakar of Lunchitz asks, it's a little presumptuous of Yehuda, no? He says, Don't be so angry. Yosef, relax. He doesn't know it's Yosef. Viceroy, however he addressed him. Please don't be angry. Please don't be frustrated. Please don't have any sense of rage. Because you're like Paro. You're all powerful. You don't need to be threatened. You don't need to be angry. Please don't be angry. And the Kliyakar is bothered. If Yehuda is about to confront Yosef and beg for his brother's freedom and his life, if Yehuda is about to confront Yosef and take his own life into the balance, isn't it a little presumptuous and brazen to tell Yosef, don't be angry? I read an article a few months ago. It said the worst thing to tell someone when they're upset is, what's the worst word to use to someone when they're upset? Relax. <laughs> if you've been on the other side of that, you know that when you're upset about something and someone tells you, relax, you know the one thing you will not feel is relaxed. Right? The worst thing you could tell somebody who's upset about something is, relax, relax, relax. So isn't that what Yehuda's telling Yosef? Listen, Yosef, I, I'm about to confront you. I'm about to find the courage to confront you. First thing, relax. What are you so bent out of shape about? Relax. Why are you so angry? Relax. Now, isn't that a poor strategy? Ask the Kliyakar. So the Kliyakar has an insight which is so critically important. And we've shared many times in many contexts, but it's always worth repeating and reviewing because it needs chizik because we all need work on it. And the insight is the following. Kaas, anger, clouds judgment. Anger is the most self-destructive character trait we could have. Anger is a pure emotion with no intellect whatsoever. 
other character traits. Stubbornness can be healthy when you stubbornly remain steadfast, true to your principles and values. Envy, jealousy can be channeled in a healthy way when you're jealous or envious of somebody else's righteousness or religious spiritual aspiration or accomplishment, and you want. If you're jealous that you've heard so many people are finishing shas with the dafyomi, and you say, you know what? Come Sunday, I'm starting. I want to be part of the next of the next seal. And that envy or jealousy is channeled into motivating you to do more. It's healthy. All qualities can be channeled except for two. The Rambam, Hilchos Deos, the Ramban in the letter to his son say there are two character traits that are categorically bad. They don't belong in our recipe in any measure whatsoever. Amida is a measure. When we talk about human qualities, when we talk about working on our behavior, we talk about midos. Amida is a measure. Because to what measure should I have any of these qualities? Well, no measure should you have arrogance and no measure should you have anger. Kaas is a midorah. It is a categorically bad and wicked and evil quality because when a person gives in or is consumed by anger, they simply stop thinking. Science research, the brain flow, all confirm the reptile, reptilian portion of the brain lights up, the animal fight or flight. When you get angry, you forfeit your humanity. You're no longer thinking like a person. You're filled with such rage, you're consumed with such anger, you can't see clearly. And that's why it doesn't belong within our repertoire of character traits at all. It's categorically bad. We have to always work on ourselves to never, ever be angry. Anger does not belong whatsoever. The Rambam writes, sometimes you're allowed to act like you're angry. If your kid runs in the middle of the street and they need to know just how serious you mean, don't ever do that again, you can act like you're angry as long as it's acting. But you can never actually feel the emotion of anger. We'll get to that with Tzvardea. We've quoted many times the Birchas Peretz, the stipler. If you hit the frog and it multiplied, why did they ever hit the frog again? Because when the frog came and they hit it and it multiplied, they got angry. So they stopped thinking. They hit it again. They kept multiplying. They brought a plague upon themselves. That is just how pernicious anger is. So says the Kliyakar, Yehuda understood that Kozman, as long as Yosef is angry, as long as this viceroy, as long as this imposing leader looks like he's filled with anger, he'll never hear an argument, no matter how compelling it is, no matter how persuasive Yehuda is, no matter how genuine he is in communicating, no matter how compelling he formulates the argument about why Yosef, the viceroy, needs to act differently, if he's angry, you stop thinking. When you're angry, you can't hear, you can't think clearly, you don't make rational right decisions. And so that's why he appeals to him. So Kliyakar says he wasn't telling him relax in some condescending, relax, just relax, what's the big deal, relax. Yehuda wasn't some condescending relax. What he was telling him is, let's take a deep breath. Let's calmly discuss this. I don't mean to upset you, you're not upsetting me. Let's get to a point where we can hear one another a point of being able to hear one another. John Gottman, who you know I love quoting, the world's expert on healthy marriages, talks about, he showed us when I, when I once took a two-day seminar with him, he, he showed us how he, when he counseled the couple, he had hooked them up to physiological monitors to be able to track how they were feeling. And he's seeing this couple, and it's a husband and wife, and they're going at it about something. And the wife is just beating him down. She's just berating him, she's beating him down, she's expressing her frustration, she's telling him everything wrong with him and his mother and his father and his family and his life and his everything. And if you look at the monitors that are tracking both of them, you'll see her voice is like a 200 decibels and she is you know, flailing her arms and she's going at him and he's sitting there not moving a muscle in his body. She's looking down, he's just absorbing the blows. So if you were to guess watching from the outside, you'd say that she's off the charts 
And he is calm, cool, collect. He shows the physiological monitors, and she's calm, cool, and collect. That's just how she's communicating. But really, she's got it all together. And he is off the charts. His sweat glands and his blood pressure and his heart rate and his, he's off the charts. He may be sitting there not moving a muscle, but he's about to have a coronary. He's about to have a, a, a brain aneurysm. And so Gottman talks about the notion of you need to know that the moment that you're talking to someone and they're in a position, they're incapable of listening or hearing. He talks about in marriage and communication and any healthy relationship, parent and child, the idea of self-soothing, knowing how to take ourselves down, how to lower the blood pressure, how to lower the decibel level, how to lower the, how can we lower the temperature of the conversation so we can get back to a place where we can hear one another. He says that in every fight there was a conversation that had to happen, but the fight happened instead. In every fight between a couple, parents and children, friends, in every fight there was a conversation that needed to happen, but the fight happened instead. So how do you get back to a conversation instead of a fight? You need to. So that's what Yehuda is employing here. He's telling the Viceroy, Al yichar ba'avdecha. Self-soothe. Calm down. Let's both get back to a place where we can hear one another, because otherwise it's like talking to a wall literally incapable of hearing or being moved or being changed. And we have to know that in our relationships. When we're trying to reprimand or give feedback to a child, when, God forbid, there's a tension within a couple, when it rises to a level that you're not hearing one another, just abort, just stop. Because there's diminishing returns. No one's getting their point across, and there's zero chance of reconciliation or closure. If you want to be able to break through, then you need to re restore a sense of calm, of self-soothing, and then you can have the conversation and therefore, this is not a condescending, relax Yosef, what's the big deal? This is a, let's self-soothe so that we can have a conversation. So Yehuda approaches him, and he says, you asked us whether we have a father or a brother. And we told you that we have an old father, and we have a brother who already died. And he is left alone of his mother, and his father loves him. Our brother that you, we have one brother we didn't bring down. And uh, we got it, we, and one brother that we've got to bring back up. And you told us, bring him down. You wanted to see him. And we said, We told you that if he leaves his father, he's going to die. First of all, who's he? If he leaves his father, he will die. It's a pronoun. Who's the he? He will die. Who's the he? This young man can't leave his father. And if he leaves his father, he will die. Who's the he? So you could leave the he as the son. If the son leaves his father, he'll die. You could read the he as the father. The simple understanding is the father. Yaakov has been through enough. Our father's been through enough. We already described to you that he is devastated. He's never recovered. He's inconsolable. He lost one son. He cannot lose another. He cannot lose another. We told you that. And you said, too bad, bring him down. But it could be read, not that the he will die as the father, that he will die as the, is the son. The Majit Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael of Majit says that we should read this Pasuk, at least homiletically, We should know that as we live our lives, that we have a father. And as long as we attach ourselves to him, to our father, we are alive. And the moment we detach from him, the moment we begin to live our lives as if he isn't, 
that we are independent, that we are independently responsible for our success, and that we independently can take pride in all that goes well, and we don't need him, and we don't know him, and we don't relate to him, and we don't talk to him, and we don't see him, and we don't feel him, and we don't care about him. The moment a person abandons, walks away, disconnects from God, you're dead even while you're alive. This Majit, the Rabbi Sual of Majit, his interpretation of this Pasuk, is the inverse of a Pasuk in Chabakuk. Again, Wednesday mornings in Aramunashir, we're talking about this because we've been learning a Sefer of Revolba, and the name of that Sefer is Be'emunaso Yechia. Tzadik Be'emunaso Yechia. The name Tzvi is an acronym. Tzvi, Tzadik Be'emunaso Yechia. So the Pasuk in Chabakuk says, How are you alive? What is the source of being alive? Tzadik Be'emunaso Yechia. When you have Amunah, you're alive. Your body could be failing you. You could be paralyzed. You could be terminal. You could have everything wrong in the world. But if you still see and feel and attach yourself and latch on to God, Yechia, you are alive. Tzadik be'emunaso Yechia. But azazav is aviv, but if you abandon, vames, then you die even while you're alive. Again, the Pasuk is talking specifically about Yosef, about Yaakov and Binyamin, but the Majitur encourages us to read it more broadly as talking to us as a world view, as a hashkafas hachayim, v'yazavis aviv, that if a person walks away, abandons our father, v'ameis, then we will surely die. Perak memhe pasuk gimel. Turning the perak. Right, so the storyline continues. The storyline continues. And Yehuda's telling Yosef the whole story. And then we brought him down, and then he's accused, they came to you, they'll surely die. And he tells him the whole storyline, and then we get to Pas Perak Memhe. Yosef cannot take it. He's overwhelmed with emotion. He's overwhelmed with the realization, Rabbi Salavitchik suggests he's overwhelmed maybe with the feeling that there's no break in the narrative at this point. Right? There's no break. There's no psicha. There's no psicha or stuma. You don't see any white on the line. The narrative in the Torah itself, in the in the Torah's print, just continues straight. It goes straight, signifying that Yosef interpreted Yehuda in the middle of his exhortation. Interrupted him. Yehuda is still making this argument. He's still formulating his argument, and Yosef interrupts him. Why? Because Yosef felt that Yehuda was on the verge of revealing Yosef's identity. He could no longer restrain himself. He would not let Yehuda be the one who would reveal him. So he can't take it anymore. Plus, he can't take it. Why else can't he take it? This whole thing has been a ruse. Why has Yosef not revealed himself to begin with? Why was he waiting? We mentioned last week the Ramban's approach. The Ramban's approach is Yosef knew the dream had to come true. And HaKadosh Baruch was sometimes, he quoted Revolba, that sometimes even despite how badly emotionally you want something, when intellectually you know what Hashem wants for you, that has to supersede, that has to take priority. Yosef desperately wanted to reveal himself to his brothers. He desperately wanted to reach out to his father. But he understood intellectually that Hashem had a master plan. And in that master plan, it would happen in its right time. And he could not try to expedite it. It would have to go according to Hashem's schedule, not his own. That's the Ramban's understanding. But another understanding is, that Yosef wants to give his brothers the opportunity to do tshuva gemurah. What is tshuva gemurah? Complete, the highest level tshuva, not just tshuva. Tshuva gemurah is to be back in the exact same circumstance and behave very differently. So Yosef constructs artificially a scenario where there'll be a brother, he'll potentially be abandoned. Will these brothers do what they did to him? Walk away, neglect him, abandon him, forsake him? Or now, will they do tshuva gemurah? 
put back in the exact same circumstance. And the Rambam is very interesting. Because when the Rambam quotes the definition of Tshuva Gemura, the Rambam gives graphic detail of what Tshuva Gemura is. The Rambam says, this is the Rambam, he says, Tshuva, regular Tshuva is you distance yourself from the people, the place, the taiva, the temptation, you move on. Tshuva Gemura is you're back in the exact same. We're not going to address the age-old question. If you do Tshuva properly, you can never do Tshuva Gemura. That's an Elul Tvar Torah. Remind me in Elul, we'll bring that up. We're not going to raise that. But the Rambam says, what's Tshuva Gemura? He says, you were a, a young, passionate man, and you found yourself secluded in a room with a beautiful woman with whom you were not supposed to have contact. And nevertheless, you gave in to the temptation to drive a desire, and you experienced an intimacy with that woman, you failed the test, and you sinned, for lack of a better term. What's Tshuva Gemura? So the Rambam is very graphic. He says, you're back in the same room. And it's not, he writes, so excuse me, it's not you're an old man with no drive and no temptation and no sexual appetite, and that's why you don't give in to the taifa. The Rambam writes, you have to have the exact same appetite and temptation and drive that you had previously. She has to be just as beautiful. You have to be just as secluded. Everything about it has to be exactly the same, and yet, nevertheless, you rise to the occasion and you, you are able to withstand the temptation. That's Shiva Gemura. So Yosef is constructing a scenario of Tshuva Gemura. So Binyamin is the only brother that shares the same mother. So Binyamin is the only one who can actually test the brothers to see if indeed they've done Shiva Gemura. If it's one of their own and they stand up for him, they haven't proven anything. Big deal. They stand up for their own. The question is, would they stand up for someone who wasn't one of their own the way they didn't stand up for him? So now when Yehuda steps forward, Vayigashe love Yehuda, and Yehuda says, you can't do this. He's our brother, we love him, and you're going to kill our father. You cannot do it. Now Yosef can't hold back anymore. Why? So according to the Rambam, because he sees the fulfillment of the dreams come true. They've bowed down and so on. But according to this other interpretation, because they've passed the test, because they've now proven their loyalty, because they've corrected and repaired the error of their ways, and they deserve this reconciliation, this forgiveness, for there to be this reunion among the brothers. He can't take it anymore. That's Pasuk. So we get to Pasuk Gimel. He turns to them and he says, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef. Is my father still alive? A bizarre question. Why is it a bizarre question? Because Yehuda just made the argument to him and he said, he reviewed the whole scenario. We told you we have a father and he's elderly and he's frail and he's inconsolable. And if you keep this brother, you're going to surely kill him. Yosef says, yeah, yeah, that's a nice story. By the way, I'm Yosef. Tell me, is dad still alive? Abba, Tati, I don't know what Yosef called him. But is he still alive? Is he still, it's a bizarre question. He knows he's still alive. He knows he's still alive. So he doesn't mean, is Yaakov or Yisrael the individual alive? What does he mean? Ha'od? What does he also not say? He doesn't say, Ani Yosef Ha'od Avinu Chai, is our father alive. What does he say, Ha'od? Is my father alive? My father. What was he asking him? Does my father miss me? Does the, my father that I knew, who had the special shared relationship, is he still alive? Not biologically, not physically is he alive, but is his story still alive? Is all of that still alive? They couldn't answer because they were so startled, they were so overwhelmed. To which the Gemara says, we cry every time we read this. This is the sense of being startled that we're all going to have. After 120, when we come upstairs and HaKadosh Baruch Hu plays the video of our lives and we see the truth of the consequences of our decisions and our behavior, when we have to confront a reality that we created, that we have a cognitive dissonance and that we've been able to 
somehow rationalize and distance ourselves from, when we have to confront that reality, you know what the most powerful tochah? So you say, Yom Where's the Musr? Yosef, some Musr shmuz he gave? Where's the Musr shmuz? You know what the Musr shmuz was? Ani Yosef. Two words. Where's the Musr and Ani Yosef? The Musr is not in the words Ani Yosef. It's in the reality of, oh boy. Wow. It's all come together. I see what's happening right now. So Rabbi Soloveitchik says about this, the moment Yosef disclosed his identity, he stopped being a ruler over Israel, thus ceding sovereignty to Yehuda. Providence willed that Yosef would lose and Yehuda would win. In this moment, there's a shift. The brothers have now come and they've relied and depended on Yosef. They needed him, not knowing it was him. They literally bowed down to him. Their survival depended on him. But now Yehuda's advanced an argument and Yosef is conceding to it. So the tables have turned. And now, it's not Yosef on top, but now this is the moment of the rise of Yehuda which is what destiny ultimately paskins, that in this conflict and tension between the brothers, who wins? Ultimately, David Melch Yisrael, Chai Vekayim, the Davidic dynasty descends from whom? Not from Yosef, but rather from Yehuda. To understand this drama, we have to retrace the story of Yaakov. Lavan had two daughters, says Rabbi Salavitchik, Leah and Rachel. Yaakov loved Rachel very much and tells Lavan he's ready to serve seven years for her. Rachel certainly reciprocated Yaakov's love. Yet she acquiesced to the scheme devised by Lavan to substitute Leah. Not only did Rachel not tell Yaakov about her father's plan, she cooperated in the conspiracy, sharing the password, the Simonim, with Leah. How could Rachel participate in this deceit? How could she forego her love for and devotion to Yaakov? We always praise Rachel in this way. She gave the Simonim to her heart, Rachel Mavaka Abanea, Mama Rachel. Look at Rachel. But if you're Yaakov, you got some tainas on Rachel. What happened? We went on all these dates, we pledged our love, we were going to live a happy ever after, and then you just gave it away. No heads up, no warning. You showed your loyalty to your sister over me. How could she do that? So Rabbi Salavitchik says this narrative involves two attributes of Hashem, chesed and gvura. Leah represents Midas HaGvura, the dignity and majesty of man. Her cooperation with love and scheme demonstrates courage and valor. Rachel was the opposite of Leah. She was the tragic heroine who lived for others. She surrendered her rights so others could find the happiness denied to them. Rachel represented chesed. Yehuda was a, lion, was a son of Leah. His personality radiated power, authority, and prestige. Yaakov described him as a lion, the warrior who relentlessly pursues his enemies. Consider the firmness and majestic fearlessness Yehuda exhibited when he argued with Yosef about Benjamin. After all, the viceroy could have done anything to him. He could have chopped his head off at that moment. So Yehuda is a lion, fearless, courageous, assertive. Yosef is the son of Rachel. His mission was to sacrifice, to retreat from hard-won positions. He sacrificed many times, but his real sacrifice was the way he treated his brothers when they were at his mercy. Only a son of Rachel could offer friendship and kindness to the same brothers who had caused so much misery. Yosef personified chesed. Who should be the king? That was the conflict, the tension between Yosef and Yehuda. Which one has the quality to be the king? Chesed or Gvura? If you think about it, you see this right here. Yehuda is the son of Leah, his assertiveness, his, his, um, his self-confidence, his courage, all descends from Aleah who's exhibited those character traits. Yosef descends from Rachel, who was forgiving and foreboding. Rachel, who was Maver Amidosov, who was, a, uh, was willing to let it go. And Yosef therefore lets it go. Has anyone in history ever let it more go than Yosef, who forgives his brothers and lets it go? Who's willing to let it go? 
So only a Rachel could offer that friendship. So who should be the king at this moment? The Almighty decided in favor of the son who represented Gvura. The king is the trustee and leader of the people. He must display Gvura in all respects. The ability to acquire, to defend, to possess, to protect. A life sacrificed for others, a life of chesed is appropriate for the individual. But the king cannot sacrifice at the expense of the nation. If the king has too much Rachmanas, then the people will be compromised in the end. A king needs Gvura. A king needs assertiveness and confidence and courage. A king needs fearlessness. And if there's too much compassion, they will not be able to properly advocate or represent the values, the interests of the people. So you understand the Rav's interpretation of this Tosuk is actually mind-boggling. What he's basically saying is, Yosef was on the trajectory of having the dreams fulfilled. He was going to rise to be the leader, the person in the position of power to whom everyone else bowed. But at the moment, this is ironic, paradoxical, at the moment that he was so forgiven to his brothers, he actually proved that he didn't have what it took to be the king. Because he was such a mavater, therefore, imagine somebody takes a piece of your territory, somebody attacks your people, and you're a mavater. Okay, next time try to behave nicer. Don't kill my people. Don't take a piece of our land. You can't be a mavater when you're a ruler. So somewhat ironically, it's Yosef's koach havatronus. It's Yosef being a mavir. It's Yosef's willingness to be foregoing and forbearing. It's Yosef's attribute of Rachel, of chesed, which end up disqualifying him for the very dreams that he had for himself. It's a wild interpretation of what's going on here. And Yehuda, to the contrary, who's finally, who's been passive. Yehuda, who didn't have what it took to confront his brothers in order to save Yosef originally, now Yehuda has found his voice. Yehuda has found his leadership. And because he expresses the sense of gvura, he in fact becomes the person who is the right one to be that, to be that leader. So that is Rabbi Soloveitchik's understanding of what is going on in this conflict of Yehuda and Yosef. There are other ways of understanding. Soloveitchik on another occasion, and his brother Avaron Soloveitchik also understood, Another lesson of leadership that comes from the struggle of Yehuda and Yosef and the fact that it's Yehuda who emerges to be the, um, the father of the monarchy. And he says the following. This is in a collection of the Rav's talks on Yosef and Moshe called Vision and Leadership. He says the clash and confrontation between Yehuda and Yosef is not a petty power struggle, but it's a profound battle for the future of Jewish leadership. You see, they represent two different paradigms or archetypes of leadership. The Rambam says there are two types of righteous people. What he calls the chassid. The chassid is the one who never had an inclination for anything wrong. Pure, humble, instinctively kind, who has no struggle, doesn't wrestle with desire. You know people like that? We hate them. We all hate those people. They're hard to be around. We admire them and love them, but we also hate them. They're essentially born righteous. They always make the right decision, no matter the circumstance. They're never tempted. They don't even struggle. It comes easily. It looks right. It's a righteousness from birth. They have a purity and an innocence and a tamimistic that they're righteous. They're the chassid. But the Ramam says there's another type of righteous person whom the Ramam calls the kovesh es yitro. They spend their life fighting and battling desire, temptation, and urge. They're righteous not because they have no temptation, they're righteous because they confront and they conquer and they overcome that inclination and that temptation. So these two paradigms, which one is higher? Which one is better? Which one is greater? To which do we give the mantle of Jewish leadership? Who do we want in a leader? Who do we want in a leader? The one whom the hagiography was written? 
the one whom the biography, but the new genre called hagiography, which is they, you know, they were born knowing shas, and they were born having perfect midos, and they were born being absolutely perfect? Or do we want the one who struggled, the one who battled, and the one who ultimately conquered? So he says, Yosef represents the chassid. Like Moshe, we don't find him succumbing to temptation, making the wrong choice, having poor judgment or self-destructive behavior. Yes, the wife of Potiphar tries to seduce him, but even there, the greatest test of his life, Yosef does the right thing. Doesn't stumble, doesn't fall. He doesn't have to pick himself up seven times because he never fell to begin with because Yosef is the chassid. He has that righteousness instinctively, intuitively, naturally within him. Yehuda is the paradigm of the model of the opposite. Yehuda struggles and he wrestles and sometimes he even loses. The whole episode of Yehuda and Tamar you can't understand in any other way. It's a low moment. He fell down. In fact, we mentioned last week that the narrative, the passage of Yehuda with Tamar begins with Vayered, he went down. The imagery literally we have of Yehuda is he fell down. But what did he do when he fell down? Picked himself back up. And with the famous admission, Sad Kamimeni, you are more righteous than I, what did he show? He was Kovesh as Yitzro. He put himself back on the path of greatness and righteousness. Because even though, yes, he had fallen, he got back up. He had the courage to admit he was wrong. So says the Rav, this conflict, this confrontation of Yehuda and Yosef is not a power struggle, and it's not just an interesting story, so Jewish schools and camps would have a, a, a play to put on for in perpetuity. But it's a family, or it's not just a family sibling rivalry, but it's the battle for the qualification of Jewish leadership. Who is the worthy leader? Is it the Chassid or the Kovesh Yitro? The pure person with no temptation or the one who has fallen and proven they can get back up, who has battle scars? And says the Rav, what the Torah Paskins, what the Rebbe Shalom Paskins is, that who is the more qualified leader? What do we look for in a leader? Is somebody who's Kovesh Yitro. It's he and progeny after him who are the Jewish monarchy, not Yosef. It's a power of personal redemption, the ability to recognize and admit mistakes and to learn from them. And that, is that not the message of all of Tanakh? Our religion, unlike other religions, is replete. Our greatest heroes are all those who have history of falling down and getting back up. Almost every one of them. Yosef may be an exception, and Moshe Rabbeinu is an exception, though he had complicated parts of his life as well. But our entire Tanakh, until today, Rafutner has a famous letter where he talks about how, how damaging it is to think that our greatest scholars, that our greatest leaders, men and women, were born perfect, never had a struggle, because then we don't relate, then we don't identify. And again, you know this, in other contexts we've given a series of shiurim about are we allowed to be critical of our avos and imahos? And we find two tracks, those who say they were perfect and you can't say one word, and others, including Rishonim and Akronim, who had no hesitation to see their fallibility because within that, their fallibility didn't diminish their greatness. Their fallibility actually promoted, reinforced that sense of, that sense of greatness. So the whole question about do we, do we have to see our leaders as being beyond reproach, infallible, or do we believe in a sense of fallibility? Kodesh Baruch Hu Paskin that. When he gave the monarchy to Yehuda over Yosef, and when he gave us a Tanakh that's filled with people who were imperfect, who were fallible, who made mistakes. But I'll tell you even more than that, and then we'll move on. My uh, friend, Rabbi Dr. Meir Salavechik, a great nephew of the Rav, points out that no, no place is this more clear than our understanding the pedigree of Mashiach. We spoke about this last week when we talked about Mashiach's 
salacious yichus and background, right? And if you contrast, particularly in this week, let's say, on the Gregorian calendar, and we contrast, we're reading these partios in our understanding versus what's happening in the, I wouldn't say secular, but the Christian world around us, in that little understanding is such a fundamental, fundamental difference in our view of what Mashiach will be. Their view for Christians' redemption is an act of divine grace, salvation of a humanity incapable of saving itself. So their Messiah, obviously that's wrong and we don't believe in whatsoever, can't come from their perspective unless God graciously grants him because we can't fix or repair ourselves. The Torah tells us the opposite. The Raman HaKos in the seventh parak understands the Pasuk literally and asserts Mashiach will come when we're worthy, when we do tshuva. That's when Mashiach's going to come. In fact, in Al HaTshuva, the Rav asked, how can one of the Animamins be Animamin Ben Shlema Bebiyaz Mashiach? I believe with a full heart that Mashiach's going to come. I thought Mashiach's only going to come when we're worthy. So how can I believe with a full heart? Said the Rav, that Animamin is a statement and affirmation of belief. I believe in the Jewish people that we will be worthy. Such a powerful idea. My belief in Mashiach implicitly is a belief that we will prove worthy to bring him. I believe with a full heart, I believe in our people. I believe in the Jewish people. I believe we will prove worthy. I believe we are redeemable. I believe no matter how many mistakes, how fallible, how bad our judgment, I believe we can come back. So that is a fundamental difference in their origins. For them, so Messiah's origins have to be pure and untainted and immaculate. For us, Mashiach's origins are as I said, filled with Yehud and Tamar and Rus, the convert, and the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters, and David and Bacheva, and so on and so forth. So in this season that we are inescapably still exposed to here in the Gullus, it's an excellent opportunity to be reminded how different our worldviews, not how different just that ours is true and theirs is, is not, but the triumph of Yehuda over Yosef is the triumph of the tradition of Mashiach, that we believe in the ability to come back. That we have that capacity, no matter how many times we fail to get back up, that Yehuda is our greater or stronger role model. He is the representation of Jewish leadership. Okay, let's go on. Perak Memhe Pasuk Dalad. We're going to make a lot of progress by going to the next Pasuk. Very, all the way to the very next Pasuk. So we're still the unfolding of the story. Yosef has revealed himself and... He says, come close. And he says, relax. 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 It's me, Yosef. Remember the brother you threw in the pit? Took the coat off. Remember the whole... And now, Don't be sad. And don't be worried that you're the one who sold. You think you sold me? You didn't send You didn't send me here. Why is Yosef telling them that? If you're the brothers, what's your immediate thought? I hope my life insurance policy is paid up. <laughs> your immediate first thought is, I'm a goner. It's over. We threw him in the pit. We abandoned him 22 years later. Your first thought is, and now he's going to have us killed. At worst. At best, he's going to throw us in a pit for the next however many years. So Yosef is trying to allay their fears and he says, relax, don't worry. The good kind of relax. Really relax, don't worry. It's me, Yosef. Remember the old brother who used to play stickball in the backyard? It's me, Yosef. 
And oh, 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 you're worried because you think I'm going to take revenge. No, don't worry. My perspective's always been, you didn't send me here. If I'm here, it's only because God wanted me to be here. And Yosef is a mavater. He's forgiving. He's foreboding. He lets them off the hook and he lets it go. There's a lot to talk about here, including the fact that why was Yosef entitled to let them off the hook in that way? What they did was, was terrible. So we have a Pasuk, when Rav Shechter brings this up in his Sefer on Parsha, he says, I don't understand. The Pasuk says when it comes to the laws of vows, the Pasuk says that if a woman takes a vow, she's not going to eat potato chips. Her husband, who's at work, hears about the vow, and quickly he annuls the vow for her because he knows his wife. And he knows there's no chance that she's going to be able to withstand the urge to eat potato chips. Just so happens, he annuls the vow, and an hour later, there she is with the potato chips, and she can't hold back, and she now digs in. Does she need forgiveness atonement? I would have thought, no. If you're her lawyer in Shemayim, you get her off on a technicality. You say, yeah, true she took a vow not to eat potato chips. True she ate the potato chips. But judge, your honor, her husband who was at work, I have witnesses who will testify he annulled her vow. Yet the Pesach says, Vashem Yislach La. Why? The Gemara Nazar Chav Gimel tells us that if she violated the nether unbeknownst to her, because he already revoked it, she nevertheless requires forgiveness. That's why the Pesach says, Vashem Yislach La. Why? Because true, she's off on a technicality, but what was her intention? When she ate the potato chips, she didn't know the, not the vow was annulled. When she ate the potato chips, she was still doing an act of rebelliousness. She was still violating an indiscretion. She was doing something wrong. And therefore, she doesn't need maybe the level of atonement had she not gotten off on the technicality, but still, she needs some degree of Hashem Yislach La. She needs some degree of forgiveness. So I asked Rav Schechter, and he's clearly quoting the Kli Chemda who asked this question, I don't understand. Nice, Yosef says, it worked out in my favor. True, it all worked out in my favor. I rose to become the viceroy. I'm powerful and I'm wealthy and I'm famous. And it's true, I was able to sustain you and Abba by being able to provide you food. And yes, I happened to have saved the Egyptian economy. It all worked out pretty well. But still, that wasn't their intention. Why aren't they accountable for their intention even if it all worked out well in the end? Even if it all worked out well in the end? You punch me, and I have to go to the hospital. And when I get to the hospital, because you punched me, they took a blood test, and it happens to be they found out I have X disease, and I was able to treat it. So do I say, oh, don't feel bad you punched me. It all, I needed to be in the hospital. I'm trying to find you. What I say is, Hashem is amazing. He enabled me to be punched so that I'd find out I have the illness. But you didn't have to be that low-life ice bar who punched me. <laughs> the fact that you were the shliach of the makom, the fact that Hashem chose you to be his shliach, you're accountable for punching me. And simultaneously, I have gratitude to God for the fact that He brought me to this real reality which ended up saving my life. What right do you have, though, to forgive or not hold accountable those who had the poor intentions to begin with? That is the question of the Klichemda. He gives an answer of the Klichemda and the Ran's answer. And Shechter gives his answer. I don't want to get into this. I'll leave that part for you as a question. What right did Yosef have to not hold them accountable? But the other side of that coin that Yosef says God wanted me to be here and I couldn't be here if it weren't his will and therefore I meant to be here so the magic word relax relax because it's all meant to be because Baruch Hu meant for me to be here so I want to share with you a very interesting insight uh, Rashi that's what I wanted to tell you if you look at Rashi and Pasuk Dalad 
So Rashi tells, Rashi says, Kshuna Eli, come close to me. Why does he say come close? Let's snuggle. Come close to me. You know, they say, he says, Ani Yosef and you know what the brothers do? So he says, come close, come close. Stop walking backwards. Stop pulling away. It's not contagious. I'm not going to kill you. Come close. Come close. By the way, before I forget, Rabbi David Foreman is giving a shoot here today at 4 o'clock. If you haven't heard of Rabbi David Foreman, whatever you're doing, cancel it and get here at 4 o'clock. He is an outstanding, extraordinary, exciting, novel teacher with very, very novel ideas. Last minute, he happens to be in Florida. Before he goes to the airport, he's coming to give a shoot at 4 o'clock. You don't want to miss it. Definitely come at four o'clock. So why does he say Kshuna Eli on this parsha, on this on this story? Pasuk Dalad. So says Rashi. He sees they're walking backwards. He says, "Come close." Karlam blushing. He speaks softly. And what does he show them? The harem lahem shahu maho. He says, "Come, let's go to the locker room for a minute. We got to show you something." He says, "If you don't believe me." If you think I once read about in the newspaper that you had a brother Yosef and now I'm an imposter pretending that I'm Yosef, let me prove to you I'm Yosef. What does he show them? His bris. I'm circumcised. In Egypt, that was not the common practice. So when he shows that he's circumcised, that's the evidence of who I am and you have nothing to worry about. Relax. I am circumcised. We are all, we're all good. Relax. Back to the old relax. Back to the old relax. So says the Minchas, the Sichos Eliezer. Who's the Sichos Eliezer? Rabbi Eliezer Goldzaler. Who was he? He tragically was killed in a bus accident at 46 years old. He was the son-in-law of the Tversky's from Milwaukee, father of 13 children, and a Tamachacham, a Tzadik, in his own right. And he has magnificent Sichos. I, fr- I thank my dear friend, Rabbi Ari Merzov, who shared his uh, with me and turned me on to it. Sichos Eliezer, he writes the following. And if you understand his life story and the tra- his tragic loss and his children's deep emuna and wife and in-laws and family despite his loss, this piece that he so almost prophetically wrote takes on even more significance. And he says the following. I want to learn this with you in the few minutes that we have left, at least a little bit, even though we've just started the introduction to the parsha. He says the following, I'll tell it to you mostly outside. Why in the world is Yosef showing his bris? He's showing the brothers his bris. So the simple understanding is what I just told you, is that he didn't have an ID card, he didn't have a passport, he didn't have, I'm a member of the Yaakov family, so what was his greatest ID? The greatest identification mark he had was to show that he was circumcised. Says the Sichos Eliezer, no, that's not why. You know what he was showing them? He says, even though I've been living here in Gullus, you haven't seen me in 22 years, I'm the viceroy, I'm the vice president of the United States of America. I want you to know that the place that most stands for an aspiration of Kedusha, of holiness, the place that most defines the one who, is, who has the pursuit of holiness, I am still the same Yosef. I have maintained and preserved my aspiration for holiness even here in the Gullus, even in the dark and deep exile, even in a place where I'm in a host nation, I'm still the same person who I am. I'm the same person who I am. It doesn't matter where physically you are. Of course, we all belong in Israel, and Aliyah is not if but when, and we always talk about and promote the significance of redemption of being in Israel. But we need to know that wherever we are in the world, as long as we identify ourselves as Jews, 
and the Torah informs and inspires who we are and how we live. And we preserve and maintain, we're Shomer Esabris, we have a Shmira, we're safeguarding our aspiration for Kedusha, then we could be redeemed no matter what exile we're living in. Everything follows the beginning. So if Yosef, who began the experience of exile, Yosef is the embodiment. Yosef is, launches the notion of Jew in exile, but does so in a way that preserves Kedusha. Therefore, we too are never really fully in exile as long as we continue to protect and preserve our aspiration, our hope, our identity for Kedusha. This gives us the power, the strength, to continue in the diaspora. It's irrational. There is no explanation for how Jews have survived for 2,000 years, how we have survived pogroms, extermination attempts, how we have survived uh, Inquisition and Crusades and Holocaust. We have survived the worst atrocities and the most systematic attempts to eliminate us. What is the core? What is the source? What is the driver? What gives us the courage and the faith? And what has caused us to survive? His body was in Golis, but he never went into Golis. And as long as a Jew is able to transcend the physical Golis that we're in, we find the strength, the energy, and the courage to be able to stand, to be able to persevere. And that's what he meant when he sent Shalach Yosef Lamar Aviv, Od Yosef Chai. Tell my father, Od Yosef Chai, Vachihu Moshel Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim. Why was Yosef sending the message to his father? You need to know, tell Abba, tell Tati, tell Dad, Yosef is alive and he's the leader of Egypt. My God, does Yishkan possess Shemoshe la Mitzrayim? V'lama rotsa sheyisapur la'avav is kol kvoto b'mitzrayim. Tell Dad I'm alive and I manage the biggest hedge fund. Tell Dad I'm alive, I'm a senior partner in the law firm. Tell Dad I'm alive, I drive the nicest car. What is Yosef trying to impress Yaakov? Tell Dad I'm alive. Let him know I'm a leader. I, I, made, I went to Ivy. I made something of myself. He's trying to prove to Yaakov he made something himself? What he's trying to tell him is, you need to know that even though I've risen to the top, I'm at the top of this Golos, it hasn't compromised an iota of who I am and everything you taught me of who I am. And Yosef in that way is our most incredible role model to be able to live wherever and not assimilate and not lose our values, and not, and not forget who we are. Yosef is the archetype and the model to rise to the top, to live with affluence, and to live with success, and to have every opportunity, and yet never forget who we are. And that's why he says, I'm Moshe B'chol Mitzrayim, but Od Yosef Chai, your Yosef is still alive. The Yosef you taught and you learned with and that you transmitted your legacy from your father and grandfather to, Od Yosef Chai, that Yosef is still alive, that the Golas has not compromised and it has not caused me to be worn down at all. And what does Yaakov say in response? Batachi Ruach Yaakov Avihem. Yaakov is revived. He comes alive. Because Yaakov's big fear, if not that Yosef is physically gone, is that he is assimilated, intermarried, spiritually gone. So Yaakov's response is what? He's literally revived. He comes alive. And what does he say? Now I'll only die once. And Rashi says, what does it mean, I'll only die once? 
What do you die and you're brought back to life and then you die? How many times do you get nine lives? What do you mean you're only going to die once? Rashi explains. You know what Yaakov meant? He thought, I'm going to have two deaths. Physically, my life will end, and spiritually, my continuity will be cut off. But now that I know that my Yosef is owed Yosef Chai, now that I know that he remains Yosef, and he's raising a Menashe and Ephraim, and there'll be a continuity of my sacred values, then I'm I'm not going to die twice, I'm only going to die once. Because we have an immortality when we successfully transmit, when we create a continuity of our values and who we are, then we have an immortality. Yaakov realizes, I've achieved immortality if he's remained in Od Yosef Chai, even though he's Moshel B'chol Eretz Mitzrayim. What a powerful understanding of the message Yosef was sending and the image of a, of a wilted, depleted, half-dead Yaakov as if coming back to life, being revived by the understanding that he has a continuity through his Yosef, that despite being the Moshe B'chol Eretz Mitzrayim, he remains in Od Yosef Chai. And he says, the Sichos Eliezer, listen to what he says. He tells a story. You can understand Yosef's understanding that sometimes we only live life, we have to live life going forward, but we always only understand it backwards and in retrospect. And he tells the story of the Lev Simcha of Ger. So the Lev Simcha, the Ger Rebbe, went many, many years without children. So what happened? And then his wife got sick. So his father, the Imre Emma, said, go to Eretz Israel." Because we know that being in Israel is a school for having children. You need to go to Israel, your wife will heal, and please God, you'll have children. He suffered, he struggled. There's nothing more painful than infertility, than being childless. And, and he went to Israel and tried to try to reverse it. And what happened when he went to Israel? The outbreak of the Holocaust and the Gera Hasidim of Poland were wiped out. And he was in Israel at the time, and therefore he survived. The Gera Hasidus survived. And that was the only reason. What in the moment feels like the most painful experience is actually Hashem planting the seeds of what will be your personal redemption. What will be your personal redemption? He was distanced from his father's table. He felt abandoned by his father. He felt hopeless and helpless having no children. Woe is me, why do I have to leave and be away from the family? Ultimately, he had children, and there was a continuity. It's what saved him and saved his family. We have to be very careful when we daven, what we ask for. Because we always have to qualify and say, Hashem, here's what I'm asking for, that from my finite perspective seems to be the best thing for me, but I defer to your infinite perspective. We should never try to twist Hashem's arm to do what we think is right, because we never know that what feels right in this moment is actually the biggest disaster, and what feels unbearably wrong and painful in this moment is actually planting the seeds of our own personal redemption of yet what is to come. And that's the story of Yosef. That if you'd ask Yosef while he was in a pit, and while he was languishing in prison, and even once he had risen to be the viceroy, if you asked him, he would tell you it's misery. But as it turned out, Hashem knew what he was doing, and all of the destiny of the Jewish people was unfolding in that process. All of that was a, a part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's master, master plan. <laughs> what can we do? Next year, Parshas Vayigash. Amir Hashem. 4 o'clock today, by Foreman. 11 a.m. tomorrow morning is the CM. Thank you very, very much.